Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, it's Crystal Knight and welcome back to the show brought to you by Newsweek. I often speak about voting rights on this podcast because I care about voting rights And I care about every single American's access to the ballot, regardless of your race, gender, creed, orientation. I just think folks should vote and folks should have an easy process for voting. However, and whatever that looks like wherever you live. Well, this week, the Supreme Court made a decision in a case that was brought by the state of North Carolina, Moore versus Harper. And ultimately, in a 6-3 opinion, they rejected an extreme legal concept known as the independent state legislature theory. Now, backers of this theory contend that the Constitution's elections clause gives state lawmakers free reign to establish rules for congressional elections and manipulate voting maps without being checked by state constitutional protections that are also enforced by state courts. Now, that was a lot. I know that was a lot. (laughs) You're like, Crystal, what does all of that mean? I don't have to explain it. That's why I bring on the experts to absolutely explain this. And so this week I'm talking with the Campaign Legal Center and a redistricting expert who worked on this case and is working on other cases to break down what does this case mean for elections in North Carolina? But on the larger context, what does this mean for other states as we move into 2024? We know it's going to be a big presidential year. And we need to understand all of these laws in the context as we're moving forward. This week, I am speaking with Mark Gaber. He's the Senior Director for Redistricting at the Campaign Legal Center. Welcome to the show, Mark. Crystal, thanks for having me. If you can start off with just telling our listeners, what is the CLC? What do you all do? I'm here this week, you know, interviewing you to talk about the SCOTUS decision that just came down. But for, you know, for general context, If someone's listening and they say, well, what is that organization and what do you do? How could you share that in a quick, you know, maybe 30 to a minute for our listeners? Sure. Uh, CLC is the Campaign Legal Center, um, and we are based in Washington, D.C., and our mission is to advance democracy through law. And so we do that in a number of ways uh, through litigation, uh, but also through policy work. Uh, Our areas of focus are redistricting, which is uh, what I do, uh, voting rights, campaign finance reform, and government ethics. And so in all four of those areas, we bring litigation to, you know, advance governmental reforms and ensure in the area that I work on that uh, both that we curb partisan gerrymandering, uh, but also in particular that we advance the rights of minority voters under the Voting Rights Act and and to make sure that uh, everyone has an equal opportunity to participate uh, in the political process. I requested to speak with you because the Moore versus Harper case was just 
litigated at the Supreme Court level, and the Supreme Court came down with their decision. And many progressives are calling this a victory. They're calling it a victory because, you know, the independent state legislature theory that was argued um, really tried to assert that partisan gerrymandering in the state of North Carolina should stay, essentially. Now that SCOTUS has ruled, can you bring us forward to today? And really, we'll probably have to also go back to December and what happened. But why is this victory really a victory? And what does it mean for the state of North Carolina? What does it mean for gerrymandering or redistricting? How we think and feel about this context? I think it's important to just start with the general framing about maybe what the case is, what it did, why it's important. So I know I threw out a lot of things right there, but (laughs) feel free to kind of jump in and start where you see fit. Sure, absolutely. So I'll start with what the case is, and then we'll maybe talk about this theory that was advanced because it goes beyond, it it was very dangerous and it goes beyond just redistricting. So the case was about uh, North Carolina's uh, redistricting, the Republican controlled legislature after the 2020 census drew congressional maps and state legislative maps that uh, substantially favored Republican candidates well in advance of what one would expect from a pretty evenly divided state. Um, North Carolina is a state that both presidential uh, part or both political parties have won at the presidential level in the past 15, 20 years, uh, has had senators and governors from both political parties and when a fair map is drawn, has a pretty evenly split congressional delegation. But the Republicans were in charge and they uh, drew, you know, a quintessential partisan gerrymander. Mm -hmm. And plaintiffs brought a lawsuit in state court um, following a federal Supreme Court decision back in 2018 or 2019. Uh, Parties can no longer bring partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to do this, you have to go to state court. So, the, the plaintiffs did that in North Carolina. They had previously had success in state court in North Carolina bringing this type of claim. And it's why North Carolina has, for the past few cycles, had pretty fair congressional plans because the courts have ordered the state to have them. And they did that here. Uh, the state Supreme Court said this was an extreme partisan gerrymander, what the Republicans did. And they had to go back to the drawing board and, and come up with a fair plan. Okay. And one of those plans, you know, was adopted and was in place for the 2022 elections, and we saw a pretty fair outcome uh, in those elections as a result. The legislature appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court, and what they said was the federal constitution and the elections clause of the federal constitution gives to the state legislatures the power to uh, control congressional redistricting. And their argument was not only does it sort of require the, the legislature to be the one to act, but it, it is only the legislature that has any say about it. And so they said the state Supreme Court had no power to enforce the state constitution hmm. uh, against the state legislature. So, so basically yeah. they wanted they wanted power and they thought that the state ledge really could supersede all these other levels. Yeah, that they were the only people who had any authority to say anything about right. congressional redistricting. Hmm. 
hmm. unchecked by courts. Hmm. That was pretty radical. Very um, radical. <laughs> Very and, radical. You know, love state legislatures, but if you <laughs> read some news to see some of the things some of these folks say, yes. you, you might wonder if these are the people we want to give unchecked power to across right. the country. Uh, so the, 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 I guess the thing I wanted to point out though, about this theory was that, you know, this was about redistricting, Mm -hmm. but this same theory is the theory that the folks who tried to overturn the last election in 2020 used as their legal argument to say that not just redistricting, but like anything about elections, the Hmm. presidential election the congressional elections that the state legislatures were supreme. And if a state court came in and said, oh, well, it's the COVID pandemic, there's unusual circumstances, this, you know, such and such requirement of multiple witness signatures or or whatever for absentee voting, those court cases that in some instances relaxed those requirements, given the conditions that we were all in, uh, they argued that the state courts had no power to enforce their state constitutions in that manner. And so it, it really was latched onto over the past five, 10, you know, probably five years as this very radical theory to empower a handful of legislators to dictate you know, electoral outcomes. So let me ask this. While state legislatures like what happened in North Carolina while they're pushing this this theory forward, they're asking it to go up to the Supreme Court. What happens with the state of the lines, meaning the, the current lines that were already drawn in 2020 or after 2020, after the 2020 census? You know, they drew lines. It was challenged. Uh, it went to the courts in the state. The state overruled it. And then the state legislature decided to, you know, obviously take it to the Supreme Court. But what happened in the meantime, before the the SCOTUS ruling, were the former lines still in place or were the, you know, new lines that the, you know, Republican led legislature in place? And how did that affect the elections in North Carolina? After the uh, state Supreme Court ruled that the Republican plan was a gerrymander, there was a, a remedy put in place. Okay. And so the, so, and the, and the legislature tried to get that interim remedy overturned and stayed by the U S Supreme court and the U S Supreme court declined to do that. So the 2022 elections happened under the remedial map that was not a partisan gerrymander. Got now, it. The, the critical thing that happened between then and today, mm-hmm. however, is that in the 2022 elections, though there was a fair you know, election for Congress, the voters chose to elect two uh, re- new state Supreme Court justices. And in doing so, they flipped the majority of the state Supreme Court from being uh, held by a Democratic justices to being held by the Republican justices. And those new justices voted to grant what's called rehearing of the decision uh, of the prior Supreme Court about the partisan gerrymander. So while this is going on in the U.S. Supreme Court, 
the state Supreme Court, the newly constituted state Supreme Court, mm-hmm. basically undid uh, the decision finding that those districts were partisan gerrymanders and said, like the federal courts, we now hold in North Carolina that the state courts are powerless to determine that a plan is a partisan gerrymander and is unlawful under the state constitution. And so this Supreme Court decision uh, is a is a win for democracy and it's a win for, you know, mm-hmm. for, for everyone who believes in the rule of law. Um, unfortunately, the and a, and a, just a, a very political move, the new state Supreme Court majority has undone that victory and, and practical effect for the voters in North Carolina. Oh, wow. How have they undone it? Can you break that down for us, how they've already, you know, attempted to sideline this decision? So it's not necessarily this Supreme Court decision that mm-hmm. they've sidelined. It's just that they are the new state Supreme Court has said that uh, it under its state constitution, partisan gerrymandering does not not that it doesn't violate the state constitution, but rather that state courts. Uh, in its view, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. don't have the power to invalidate uh, redistricting plans in North Carolina, using the same sort of rationale that the U.S. Supreme Court did back in 2018 um, about uh, federal claims about partisan gerrymandering. So it's basically just saying, oh, you know, we see this, this is a problem, right. but, but the courts, you can't come to us. Uh, we're in this state, we're powerless. Now, The U.S. Supreme Court just, you know, yesterday or whatever, I've lost track of time, I think it was yesterday, said uh, if the court, if the state courts decide that they can hear the case, then the federal constitution doesn't stand in the way of that. But the state of North Carolina's Supreme Court has now said, oh, we can't, we think under our own constitution, we can't do this. And it just completely reversed, you know, the decision of the same court. Just it was a change in personnel on the court. This is yeah. essentially the only thing that you can point to. Okay. Well, you also talked about the ruling being a win for democracy, just in general. So how should listeners think about maybe they're not in maybe they don't live in North Carolina, maybe they live in Tennessee mm-hmm. or Alabama or Texas or Colorado. How should we think about this and what it will mean for other states? who might be facing some of these same challenges with their state legislative bodies. Yeah, it really emphasizes the importance of state Supreme Court elections and in states that, you know, decide those positions by elections. The voters should pay attention and participate in those elections because what the U.S. Supreme Court has just said is state Supreme Courts can enforce their constitutions against the legislature. Now, in order for that to happen, you have to have a willing set of people on your state Supreme Courts. So that's uh, the first thing I would say. Um, The second is that it it has thankfully reduced the risk of the types of uh, election subversion tactics that we saw uh, from folks affiliated with uh, President Trump in the last election. By taking away this argument that the legislatures of the states are sort of supreme floating entities that are unchecked by our 
normal judicial process Mm -hmm. that I think has put us on a safer footing for the 2024 elections um, and taken some of the wind out of the sail of the people who would seek to undermine the rule of law, um, which I think is, you know, it's both good because, (laughs) because it won't succeed, but it's good too to, um, you know, have that sort of morale boost ahead of the next election uh, to, hopefully stop some of those tactics from being attempted in the first place. Absolutely. And if we think about the pending case against the former president um, around what happened in Georgia, we mentioned that a little bit earlier. How would this case, would it be relevant to what happened in Georgia? Meaning when the former president attempted to call the secretary of state asking for him to find votes, (laughs) Find a few votes. It sounds crazy for me to say that, but this is really what happened. Yeah. There is a tape. <laughs> there is a tape. Does this case, will it resonate as this case is being litigated down in Georgia? When we think about, you know, just redistricting, when we think about, you know, these very deep partisan lines. Well, I think uh, so. Georgia for redistricting Georgia is likely to see a, I would think a new plan, uh, but for a different reason, because of another Supreme Court decision from like two weeks ago where they upheld Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That is almost certainly going to require uh, a new map in Georgia that has an additional uh, opportunity district for black voters there. Um, on the with, with respect to Trump, this particular decision probably doesn't have a lot of relevance to that. I, it is ironic that, uh, you know, Former President Trump was among the people who were, I don't think, I don't know that he was thinking about this, but his people were advancing this independent state legislature theory. And Georgia conducted a free and fair election of following the rules set by its legislature. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone challenges that. And here you have Trump, whose people are advancing, you know, promoting the state legislatures, saying, oh, just go, (laughs) Secretary of State, just go find me. 11,700 and whatever, 87 or however many is votes. That's certainly not uh, giving the state legislature who set the laws its supreme power that they absolutely not. Mm -hmm. The other thing that just really bothered me, uh, in addition to everything else that was happening on January 6th, from a legal perspective, after the insurrection happens and after, you know, this horrible attack has happened uh, and someone's dead and, you know, police officers have been beaten. The members who are objecting to the uh, electors come back into the House of Representatives. And these are the same people who are advocating this independent state legislature supreme power thing. Come in and say that the state of Pennsylvania, that its, its electors are not valid because the legislature in Pennsylvania adopted, uh, in the Republican-held legislature in a bipartisan vote adopted mail-in voting in a state they hadn't really previously had in a, in, a, in a large measure. And so opened it up, made it easier to have mail-in voting, passed that by state statute. Mm-hmm. And then their argument was that that violated the state constitution and the state Supreme Court should have stopped it. Now, if you, if you, why would they moment, do that? Yeah, that's just, that is the precise thing <laughs> that they are saying state Supreme Courts could not do is right. to tell the state legislature, but yet they felt fine uh, objecting on the basis of that theory 
uh, contradicting what they were saying out of the other end of their mouth about the other states. Uh, and so I found that to be um, pretty ironic. So, you know, Mark, it feels like what members of Congress, what state legislator, state legislators and state Supreme Court judges are doing, they're moving the goalpost when it benefits them and their party or the attempt to rather benefit their party. Even in the last case that you just mentioned around Pennsylvania, it's a clear contradiction. If you're listening to this and you are following the story, then it is a clear contradiction to what what has happened and what they're attempting to do when the results don't go or they don't benefit their favor. And maybe people are saying, well, why would why would someone do that? Why would a legislative body do this? Why would a sitting member of Congress do this? Why is there why does it appear to have overreach in different parts of the electoral system where bodies just don't have, you know, this legislative bodies don't have control over, but they're trying to do and grasp for power in these overreaching mechanisms all to support either their favorite candidate, their favorite party or to benefit them in some way. How should we make sense of what's happening and why go to these extremes to have things benefit one particular party? That, you know, that, that is sort of the age old <laughs> problem. In our, you know, gerrymandering was named after this man, Elbridge Jerry from like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this has, this has long been with us, but I, I think that the, the good news is uh, on the on the redistricting front. The good news is this decision does that came out yesterday. The Moore case does allow state supreme courts to enforce bans on partisan gerrymandering, and there are a number of states that outright ban that. And so Florida is one, for example, and okay. there is a case pending in Florida right now in state court, and. Uh, you know, I think most observers think that the Florida Supreme Court would have been friendly to the idea that it was powerless to do something to enforce this uh, provision in the state constitution. And now we have clarity that that provision is actually lawful, mm-hmm. uh, that bans partisan gerrymandering in Florida. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in that litigation. You could see a change to the map there. Uh, there's cases pending in other courts. We have, I'm arguing in uh, July in the Utah Supreme Court, a partisan gerrymandering case. And and this decision from the Supreme Court helps that. Okay, that's good. And coupled with the Voting Rights Act decision that we got two weeks ago, I think this has actually, you know, there's been a couple of weeks of good news here uh, from the Supreme Court in terms of voting and putting, you know, people over politicians and, and protecting uh, the voting rights of, of black voters and Latino voters and Native American voters and, and others um, that, you know, we've seen a lot of good news and and the courts remain sort of a, a place to go to enforce those rights. And, you know, while we had a lot of bad actors in the in the 2020 cycle, I think what you saw there, too, is that the, the courts, you know, held as a backstop of democracy. Yeah. Um, and even some, you know, I'm sort of castigating state legislatures here, but even some of the state legislatures with folks who would have otherwise been friendly to President Trump um, did not bend to to his demands. You 
kind of saw that in Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania. Um, right. You know, ultimately, he was not able to get uh, any legislature to say, oh, we, we're just going to undo the election. The will of the people, and right. pick the person ourselves. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, that's something that, you know, hopefully will go into the 2024 election. You know, we don't know if Trump will become the Republican nominate, nominee, but it, it's looking highly likely. But I want to also go back to something that you said about the state Supreme Courts. In some states, voters get the opportunity to elect their state Supreme Court members. In other states, like I'm from Tennessee, we don't get that option. And so how do how should we think about cases like this, like what just happened in North Carolina in states where, you know, your state Supreme Court justices are literally appointed and maybe they're appointed by the governor. Maybe they're appointed by the state legislature, whoever holds the majority in their state legislature. But do you feel that voters get a fair shot at many of the cases where their judicial officials are appointed? You know, it might seem um, counterintuitive, but oftentimes the that is when you have the fairest shot. Okay. It depends on how the appointment process and there's retention elections or if it's a lifetime. So federal judges are appointed and they're mm-hmm. appointed for lifetime. Um, and the idea behind that is that it insulates them from, you know, sort of majoritarian uh, changes in public uh and public wishes and will and and so that they can just you know without concern looking behind their back at their jobs they can enforce constitutional rights that's the hope and idea behind it um and so you know sometimes elected uh state supreme court justices are concerned about their next election and might you know not be willing to go out on a limb and enforcing minority rights, you know, whatever the minority in the, you know, whether it's a political minority or a racial minority. Um, and so that's kind of the concern with, with elected positions. On the other hand, uh, you know, you see that elected sometimes if you get a bit large turnout and you get everyone involved and folks understand the importance of those elections, then there are, you know, real consequences. The, there was a major election for the Wisconsin Supreme Court in yes. April. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of an example of, you know, it can, it, I, I think uh, people should not be reticent to bring cases to courts. Uh, you know, the, these judges, whether they're elected or they're appointed, mm-hmm. are their job is to uh, enforce uh, fundamental rights. And, uh, you know, they, even, if, even if at the end of the day the, the case doesn't succeed, making them do that and making them go through the steps and, and actually write out their rationale, uh, you know, at least creates a, a historical record that can be used in the future uh, to try to undo any bad things that happen. So, Got it. Okay. Well, that, that's helpful context for us to think about, even at the state Supreme Court level. You know, as we come to a close on this, what's something that you'd like to leave with our listeners just as they think about this case we mentioned the you know voting rights victory that happened a few weeks ago at the Supreme Court level. Now we have this case. There are others that you said are are you know likely to come down, rulings that are likely to come down. How should voters think about this as they head into twenty twenty four, understanding that 
this fight for democracy, this fight for access to the ballot at an equitable way and an equitable means, this is something that's really critical and important. And it either helps or hurts people as they think about voting, as they think about heading to the polls, if they're in a rural community, if they're in a place where there's only one you know, polling location, there's so many different intersections around redistricting that affects the voters. I'd like for you to just leave us with something that we could think about as we move into next year. We know that it's going to be a heated fight, as most presidential elections are. Um, but thinking about this redistricting you know, conversation in the context of a 2024 election. Yeah, there's a number of states where, you know, the census was in 2020 and people think redistricting is over now. No. As we talk. There's, a number, there's a number <laughs> of states where it is up in the air or it is clear that there's going to be new lines drawn. And so if you're in North Carolina, for example, the legislature is going to uh, redraw those lines. And so participate in that process, like make your voices heard, um, organize, get out there, testify. That's one thing. And two is... There are forces out there, as we now know from seeing the last election, who don't value democracy over the you know results for their preferred candidate. I, that, that sort of has been a long-running value in America mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know the, the the democracy is more important than the outcome of any given election, and that that is not the case for some folks. And so we all need to vote as if our right to vote depends on it. Well, thank you so much. This has been Mark Gaber from the Campaign Legal Center. Thank you for just coming and sharing with us about this case and how it will affect different states and state legislatures moving forward as we get into 2024. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Knight Show. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.